Dear, dear listener, hi, this is John Dupuy. I want to ask a favor of you. If you like the podcast, A Deep Transformation, and you're getting a lot out of it, could you please help us by going to wherever you get your podcasts, it's a Spotify or Apple or wherever it is, and write, write a review. That would really help us to get this out. We really believe in what we're doing, and we're really praying and hoping this is helping people and being part of the solution. So if you could do that, it would be greatly appreciated by Roger, myself, and our team. God bless. Thank you. Welcome back to part two of our conversation with A.H. Almas or Hamid. This is an incredible experience being part of it and being able to share this. As most of these things go, it just gets better and deeper. So the first part's essential, but second part could change your life and it's been changing mine. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, Life-Enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I don't want to get let you get out of here without answering or at least speaking about this in your book you talk about the personal nature of god and let me say that i'm a prayer guy okay my meditation turns into prayer and i just can't differentiate at this point they kind of blend it together and i seem to have this and it seemed to find that in Rumi too this this relationship to the beloved that is also non-dual at the same time but there's there's a personal aspect that it seems that when my heart turns when I'm when I'm you know deep in 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 prayer or something. So you write about it quite wisely and, and deeply in your book. Can you speak a little to the the nature of of the personal nature of God? Yeah, you know, most of the or almost all of the devotional practices and teachings. They use prayer or chanting, a way of dialoguing with the divine, right? And they experience the divine as responding to them. And whether they're getting closer or not, you know, if you're far away, you feel bereft, and, you know, empty or, uh, you know, or longing. And the closer you are, the happier, the more intimate until you become one with it. So it's personal in the sense it does respond to the person. You know, it has a responsiveness to it. And so that's why prayer wor works. Yeah. And, and we can be personal. Yeah. Therefore, personal is an aspect of God. Yeah. It is also true in, in a deep sense. Yeah. Like where did our personalness come from? Only one place I can think of. Yeah, okay. that's why, you know, that takes us to what I call the aspects of uh, the, the spirits, aspect through nature. And in my teaching, I have the personal aspect. Like being personal is a true spiritual quality. It's not just, you know, somebody telling their stories and their life and all of that. No, you could feel personal. And somebody can know you're being personal without you having to say anything. 
So the personal is a, a spiritual quality of presence or, or of consciousness. And then that comes from pure being, from, from, from the source. It's an expression of it. So it's inherent to it. But you, see, you know, when you go to the Indian tradition, it's important for them that the ultimate is impersonal. You know, and true, when you experience the Brahman or pure consciousness, it is impersonal. It doesn't feel personal. It's not a person. It doesn't relate, but everything is equal to it. So to respond to one person is is ununderstandable in that tradition because everything is its own manifestation. It expresses itself as everything. So it doesn't respond to anything because there is nothing there outside of it. It is all its own body, its own appearance. So that's why they think of it as impersonal. You know, it depends on what perspective you take, you know, whether it's personal or impersonal. I think it can be experienced as personal or as impersonal. And they're both valid. They're all true. You know, our true nature is, is it, it has infinite potential of how it can be. I mean, it also manifests the universe with all its troubles. Who's doing it? If we if we say Rigpa is manifesting everything, well, it's manifesting the hatred, it's manifesting the wars and all of that. Who uh, who else is doing it? And Rigpa and the Buddha, they don't say there was a world with this trouble and then Rigpa comes into it. No, Rigpa, if you are in the in the Dharmakaya, everything arises out of there. See. We've kind of begun to talk a little bit about through prayer about the ways in which we can open to the non-dual love that your book describes, Hamid. And perhaps we could perhaps you could talk a little bit about this because you have a very interesting perspective that we can do our practices, but but the sense of doing our practice or even the sense of surrender is at a deeper level illusory because it assumes a separation yeah. that isn't part of our fund fundamental nature. Yeah, we talked about that last time, you know, because surrender is really nothing but the blessings of our true nature. And I mentioned it in the last chapter of this book, I think, I talk about grace. Yes. That, that surrender is the action of grace. Really, and grace is nothing but the function of love. Yes, and you suggest that, partly quoting here, that the feeling of surrender is a necessary but transitional phase. We yeah. we offer ourselves surrender to love, the divine, and yet we're required at a certain stage to recognize that in point of fact, it's not us doing the surrendering. It's it's non-dual love expressing itself in that way. Yeah, it's melting us, melting our will and our choice and all of that. And so we, we feel that as a letting go, as, as a, a surrender. And it's okay. I mean, that's one way we can experience things that, you know, we are holding on or we're trying. And then at some point we recognize doesn't work, we can't do it. And and we when we recognize our true helplessness, 
as Harris encountered it, recognizing my true help, I can't do it. I'm always on my way. When I recognized that completely, something stopped, and then there is a downpour of grace that melted everything. Melted me, melted my mind, melted my body, everything was, became pure hot, like honey. And, and that seems to be the divine expression of love toward us, toward us as individuals, because when you get down to it, you can't do it, no matter how disciplined, no matter good your practice, all these things. Ultimately, this thing, this thing called grace. And again, I find great solace and peace and joy in that because I have experienced it. And it gives me hope that the love is going to be sufficient. And no matter what, God is there. Yeah, and deep prayers really embody that. And I mean, I'd love to go deeper into this question of surrender and practicing in order to awaken. It feels like it's really important, and it's a little tricky, and sometimes it feels like it's a bit under- misunderstood. And I would say within the last three years, probably the most important recognition for me is the distinction between the slightest bit of doing or efforting and a non-doing. Once I sensed the difference, it felt like a chasm. Any doing created, let's say, samsara or, or yeah. something problematic. As you just said beautifully, you're always in your own way. And so the non-doing I've come to recognize is very important because that took 40 years of doing to... get to non-doing, I know, yeah. Yeah. So it feels like there's a valuable sequence here. And yet on there are some teachers who say that there's nothing you can do to awaken. For example, Nisargadatta's successor, Ramosh Bosaka, there's nothing you can do. Or in the Buddha's time, there's a, somewhere in some of the sutras, the Buddha talks about some of the problematic philosophies and says that the Ajavikas who taught that there's nothing you can do to awaken were most dangerous of all. So it feels like there can be a misunderstanding here. And how do we put these things together? The, the necessity of, say, the years of practice, in my case, before I could see the importance of non-doing, non-doing and, and this deeper understanding that we're always in our own way. How do you put these together? Well, it takes us back to what something we talked about, which is that our fundamental nature is manifesting everything, including manifesting the ordinary world, where we feel we are in the world and we have will and choice and all of that. And in that way, I don't see that as a delusion, as some of the teaching talk about it. I see it as one way that our nature manifests things, manifests the world as a dualistic world. That the dualistic world is not a delusion as much as is one way reality expresses itself, but not the only way. And the delusion is believing it's the only way. But in that way, in the dualistic way, we have to take things in our hand. We, we have responsibility. We have free will, you see, and we have intention. We have effort, and we need to practice, use all of those to awaken. In fact, 
all teaching start from this place. You know, all teaching start from in the, non, in the dualistic world, as you notice, everybody, you know. And from that place, you don't, you don't know yet about non-doing, and you only know about doing. So it's a matter of right doing or, or not right doing. So right doing is practicing in a way. And if you really practice assiduously, in time the practice shows you that you're helpless. You cannot really do it. Just like one of my first Tibetan Lama, this teacher told me when they asked him, what is the, the usefulness of meditation? He said, it teaches you about helplessness that you're helpless. Basically, if you meditate and realize you can't do it, that when you give up. I mean, the story of Dilgu Kenza is obvious. If you read his story, his biography, he meditated in the cave for nine years, and finally he came out told tell his teachers, not working, can't do it. He did all the thing, all the pujas, all the in practice, and didn't work, he didn't wake up. So finally, he told him, I can't do it. And then he gave up. When he gave up, he woke up, you see. But he had to do all of that to get to the place of, I can't do it. So you have to get to the place of recognizing, I can't do it. And you can't do that, for most people, without trying to do it, you see. And when you realize you can't do it, then what? Because not everyone wakes up immediately like that. No, but usually it means you stop trying, usually. You can't do it. And recognize it's not because... The other thing about not doing it, I saw for myself, it's not because there's something wrong with me individually. It is inherent to the ego consciousness that it can't do it. It is true about all people. Nobody can do it. So it's an objective helplessness. It's not a helplessness of an individual because there's something wrong with them. When you recognize that I am, I am helpless objectively so, you give up doing. When you give up doing, truly give up doing, then things can open up and pour. You know, the thing I noticed is you're not asking about are all the issues and obstacles that in the way of divine love that the book goes through. Well, let's go there. <laughs> because I, I discussed some very interesting ones there. Yeah, yeah, well, please. Any, anything struck you as, in, as uh, interesting? Let's see. I'm trying to, trying to pull, up the, pull up the list. I, I, I discussed about the beast. I talk about yeah. Jabba the Hutt. I discuss yeah. about entity, identity, all of these. Well, let's see. The one which comes up, I think, is craving or attachment, which I think you have a, and that's, all these would be worth touching on, and let's do it. But the one which strikes me at this moment is you had a beautiful, beautiful description of attachment, that when we, because we experience ourselves as separate from divine love, yet it's part of our nature, we crave it. Yeah. And yet we don't recognize what we're truly craving. And so we settle for substitute gratifications, as Ken Moore would call them. And you make the beautiful point of uh, that those sub substitute gratifications are never finally fulfilling. There's always a frustration at the heart. 
of our experience when when we try to try to obtain gratification through substitutes. Uh, as I would put it, you can never get enough of what you don't really want. So I was struck by, by yeah, that. Yeah, so that's a universal experience. I mean, that's in fact what drives many people to spiritual search or spiritual practice, is recognizing that what they're trying to do doesn't work, their attachment, or regardless how much they get from the world, doesn't do it. There's something more to it. And of course, attachment seen by all teachings as an obstacle because it means we are identified with the separate ego self and the separate ego a sense of being a separate individual is the primary obstacle to all non-dual experience not just non-dual love you see all non-dual non-duality mean no two no separateness so to to experience oneself as separate living in a world where Everything is separate. There's objects and things that are can bang against each other. What I call the billiard ball model. Now that model, which is part of the model in the, in the dualistic world, is a, part of the non-dual world that Buddhists call samsara. Is has suffering in it because it is you know inherently unsatisfying. We could get satisfaction, you could get happy sometime, whatever, but it's not deep enough. Some of us can recognize that, and it's not lasting. And that's what can lead us to, you know, to a spiritual practice or teaching. But yeah, I, you know, one thing that might be, John might be interested in, is I discussed the beast, the issue of the beast. You aware of that, John? Did you read that part? You know, I got into Job of the Hut, but please tell me what this thing I should know. Reading you is really slow going for me because I have questions. I struggle with it. I have insights. I have transmissions. It's you, you can't experience reading your own stuff as it comes through you, but it is it is not a quick or easy thing, Hamid. Well, but because it, the beast is very important thing in Christianity, Christian mythology. The beast related to the devil, right? That's right. The flesh, the desires of the flesh. Yeah. And the beast is characterized by the symbol is 666, right? Mm -hmm. Symbolize the beast. And I discovered in, in, in working with divine love that at some point there arose in me, and, I, and then I saw it arising in many of my students when I talked to them about divine love. Many of them didn't like to hear about it, that everything is love. You know, what brought in them is revulsion, anger. What do you mean everything is love? What do you mean God is love? You know, I, I haven't seen that, right? That can emerge then as a specific manifestation in the consciousness that I call the beast, which is you experience yourself as this big, powerful being that hates the good, that hates love, that hates God. And I'm, my claim in the book and the teaching is that is inherent to all egos. All egos, because they suffered, because their reality didn't come to them all the time to save them and help them, whatever, they felt abandoned or alone, all of that. There is hurt and there is anger. And this anger in time turns to hatred. And the hatred toward the good and and when people experience it 
they, when they feel what I call the beast, they feel, I don't believe in the good and I don't like it. I angry at it, and, and I find that people don't know it. They get surprised that they have it because they could be very devout Christian. They find out, I really hate God. I hate the goodness. I hate the, the light. And it is a hidden thing in the ego. It's very deeply hidden. And probably that's the reason why neither of you wanted to talk about it. It's <laughs> deeply hidden. Most people don't know it exists. But it's deeply hidden and it is a big obstacle because as long as some place in us, we really object to the fact that the goodness is everywhere. If we have doubt and objection and at some place there is hurt and anger, it wasn't there, it didn't manifest for us. You know, can manifest at some point in experience as being this big, huge being that's black and actually has a tail and horns, all of that. The soul appears that way as what represent in the movies and Christian mythology as the beast. And it's good to acknowledge it and experience it because I think if, we, if it is there in the unconscious, it will is an obstacle to true, pure, divine love. Because, you know, if there is some place in us, we object to it, we won't let it to completely be there in a permanent way. So we need to see that part in us. Everybody has that part. And we need to understand it because it has a story. It's not really the devil and the outside devil. People talk about devil as an outside force. It's not that. It is something in the consciousness and the soul. Certain manifestation that develops but somehow corresponds similar to the Christian idea of, of the beast and this dark, powerful, black, uh, negative, destructive, and want to basically destroy the good. Look around you in the world. How many people are doing that? Hmm. Where is that coming from? That's that. Where is that coming from? Right, where's that coming from? Everybody has it, but it's not everybody is not manifesting in everybody. So if we're really serious about us being close to the divine, to God, we need to recognize that part in us. It's a very deep, it's not necessarily a big force for most people, but there's something there. When it emerges, we we feel the hate, we feel the anger, but if we explore it, we, we realize that behind this is a history of frustration of 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 abandonment, of lack, of not the divine, the goodness hasn't shown up when we needed it. And as a result, we, we got angry and we got disappointed. Now we need to go, when, when you go through that history, that, what I call the beast, transform, changes into true power of the divine. And instead of hateful power, become a good power, loving power. And it's an important issue. I spent the whole chapter maybe on it, actually, mm -hmm. because it's very important for people to get into it. And most people have no inkling that there is such a thing in their consciousness. And it, does it become a matter of choice once you, you experience that in yourself? And I certainly have experienced that part of myself. Like, how does this, you tame this beast into being, as you were saying, courage and strength and power and the, this this ferocious warrior self in service of of the benevolent of love is similar to the, like the way the 
Tibetans saw that there were all these wrathful, you know, demons, whatever, and the Padmasambhava turned them into deities that help the teaching. You know, so it can transform. But transformation is through understanding, really, in my teaching, my work, understanding its history, first welcoming it, not, not rejecting it, not thinking there's something wrong, but recognize that, yes, there is something in me that feels that way. And if I hold it like that and welcome it, I have the opportunity to inquire into it, to see what's it about, what's it feel like, where does it come from, what is its underlying history. And the underlying history turns out to be a lot of hurt and disconnection. Uh, while there is no goodness around, goodness didn't show up when uh, one is at needing for the goodness to happen. So when you say there's goodness, there's basic trust. Many people say that's how it emerges. People don't believe it because it's part in them. Well, you said earlier, you said abandonment. Abandonment is a big part of it, yeah. By the good, by the loving, by the God. Well, if that's so... Yeah, yeah. You feel abandoned, and anyone who feels abandoned by God, basically. Like every Christian priest have to deal with this, really, with that part of them to really get to true faith. You know, otherwise their faith has limitation, has doubt in it. Because this first can appear as doubt, then appears as aggression, then aggression against the good. That's what distinguishes, because people have hated for many reasons. You know, if they were hurt or wronged, whatever, they end up hate arises in the soul. But this hatred is not just about hating somebody who, who did bad thing to me. It's hatred toward the good. Hatred to the, toward the benevolence, because it didn't show up to you, for you. That feels such an important aspect of the, the book and your work, Hamid, because so many teachings in, you know, make clear that we are not, we don't open to the, to the good or to reality because of our, you know, fears and phobias and, and anger. But I haven't seen much about an actual hatred of the good. Yeah. Now, most people are not aware of it. And you have to get really, you, the experience of divine love can bring it up. Because if you see love everywhere, if there is any part in you that still has an objection to it, it might be challenged and then can emerge. Well, it seems like there's a general principle in practice that when you try to cultivate a spiritual quality, whether it's love or awareness or benevolence or compassion, you either get <laughs> that experience or you get the blocks and barriers in the way to it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why there are practices, why there is a process, why there is a past, because there are obstacles. You know, it's not just because we haven't found it. No, there, there are impediments, obstacles, layers of defense. And as the Sufis say, there are thousands of veils of both darkness and light. Oh, yeah. This is one of the, of the veils of darkness. And I want to make sure we don't to draw out a couple of things you said just in passing about ways of working with this, the beast, the hatred. And you mentioned acceptance and even welcoming it. We have to be open, non-judgmental to what arises in our experience. Oh. 
And that's such an important aspect of all. Yeah, trust across the board for everything. Yeah, yeah. Not just about the beast manifestation, but anything like hurt or anger or frustration. If we don't welcome them, we tend to suppress them. If we suppress them, they stay as an impediment. They don't go away. Like many people can be awakened and can know the ultimate, but some of those stuff still sitting there, not worked out, and can manifest itself in behavior one way or another. And one of the things I've appreciated about your teachings is your acknowledgement that delusion is endless. That there's always seems to be more, more layers that can be recognized, uncovered, and hopefully released. Well, the human ego has thousands and thousands of layers of darkness and light. Darkness, I mean, there's hatred, there's anger, there's hurt, there's abandonment, there is you know, emptiness, there is impoverishment. There, I mean, there's so many things, and we need to contend with them. We can't just say, transcend them. We can't say, throw them away. Like somebody was asking me in another interview, they said, how about the netty netty? I said, yes. I say that's not it. However, I say that only after I understand it. I don't just say that's not it right away. I don't know it yet. How would I say that you do it? And it seems that what we're unwilling to experience sticks around in the mind until we are willing to experience it. And what we're unwilling to experience runs our lives. So yeah. it's a powerful dynamic. Yeah. yeah, it does run our life. So, I mean, that's one, I think, the good contribution of Freud or whatever he got the idea is the unconscious. We have an unconscious. Things can remain unconscious. We're not aware of them. But the important thing, the unconscious, it does have a force. It impacts our experience, our attitude, and our, and our uh, behavior. Well, we've explored the beast, and we have to now. We absolutely have to get to the, your most graphic image in the book of Jabba the Hutt as one of the as a, a wonderful symbol, almost archetypal symbol of the dimension of the of the ego and or aspects dynamics of the ego and the, the way that gets in the way of our, our appreciating divine love. You know, divine love has to do with abundance and benevolence and goodness and generosity and all of that. Jabba the heart is the opposite of that. It challenges that part of our ego that is greedy, that is empty and wants more of everything. Everything that is external, that is physical. And that's what Jabba the Hutt strikes me in the movie, you know, in, in the Star Wars movie. He's big, he's full of blubber, and he's eating, and he has all these women dancing, and he wants everything more and more and more, and nothing satisfies him, right? So he's, he's not just only aggressive. The greed, the, the desire for more, the lack of fulfillment, and that can appear as one of the structures of the ego that is challenged and highlighted by divine love. Because divine love is goodness. You don't need anything. You're, you're fully abundant from the inside out. Jabba the Hutt sees the abundance outside and wants it to take it in. So it is an expression of attachment and desire, but magnified in a big way by the divine love and can appear and, and people feel when they experience the job of the heart they don't speak exactly job of the heart the way in the movies but they do feel that they're big and they're sort of overstuffed and they're 
you know, greedy and, you know, they want more and they're sort of selfish and self-centered and they just want to think for themselves. And yeah, that's how Java the Hutt represents, I think. And there's, it seems like there's an important distinction here in the in the causation of, of Jabba the Heart and the Beast, because the Beast, as you describe it, this this anger, rage at God yeah. and the good, is an expression of our ex- experiences, the circumstances of our life. But it feels like yeah. Jabba the Heart, with this insatiable greed for stimulation, is existential. It seems like that's a fundamental expression of the nature. It's because of the disconnection of the abundance of being. Being disconnected from it, not recognizing it, that it is, I, I am I am full and abundant from, from within, that my nature is the source of abundance. Not knowing that, disconnected from it, ignorance about it. And it is pervasive to ego. Egos are like that in various degrees, but this is sort of a caricature of it, you know, magnifying it in a, in, in a big way. And how how do we heal Jabba the Hutt in us? The same way. You you experience it, you welcome it, and understand what's it about. And, and what's it about? And now it's not about you know, early experience or abandon, whatever. It's more of the disconnection from this whole dimension of divine love, not recognizing there is such a goodness everywhere, you know. And that's what becomes apparent if we really explore it. And, you know, I remember when I first taught that, I actually got a clip of, from the movie and showed it to the group before I gave it the, the teaching. <laughs> it was really fun. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a graphic image. Yeah. Anything else you want to say about the barriers to, to divine love? I mean? Yeah, so we talked about some of the major barriers. The main barrier, as I said, is the barrier for all non-dual experience which is the separate, believing I'm a separate entity. I'm an entity in my own, with my own, which is normal in everyday experience. That's how most people experience themselves as a separate person. And people pride themselves, I'm autonomous, I'm independent, I'm man-made, and you know, I mean, self-made and all of that. And, you know, it's in our culture is, is even idealized to be the self-made autonomous person so separateness is ideal so the it is ego taken to its idealized form in the western culture which is you know tend to be more materialistic than other cultures so the material is and that is it's a difficult issue to work through because it is part of the construct of ego it can't be ego without separateness because separateness is what defines ego. It gives a shape, gives a form, it gives a size, it gives its characteristics. You see, so to really see it and go through it, it's, it's, it's a process. It's possible to understand it, recognize how it is based on physical boundaries, how as the ego develops, the first construct that are impressed in the consciousness is feeling our body, learning our body and feeling its contours. We hit against things and stuff like that. So we have, we develop in time sense of shape. So most people walk around feeling the shape of their body as their body. I don't anymore. 
I don't walk around feeling the shape of my body. My body has no shape in my mind. When I look at it, it has a shape. But the feeling inside that has a shape and all of that is actually an image, a mental construct. And that's a difficult, took, took it a long time for me to be free of that. And I think it's one of the most difficult thing in non-dual experience is to be free from that impediment. Not enough to have an experience without it. That, and people have that all the time. They have experiences in non-duality and transcendence and infinity and all of that. Time. But without having worked through that main construct of the ego. And it, it's a process of working through it. And it has many stages and um, and it could be frustrating for some people, but it seems not to go away because it's become sort of a, a defining thing about ego and become habitual in the consciousness to experience ourselves as a. And it is also what most of the world supports. See, so that's the main obstacle that I think people need to contend with in dealing with the non dual love. But they will encounter it in all the non-dual realization. Mm. Love helps in some sense because if there is love present, it makes it easier to let go of those boundaries. They they can get softer, can be melted by recognizing the basic trust that the goodness. And Hamid is is the ego, well, not necessarily the enemy. But the ego is a necessary creation of God to get us to the point where we can realize who and what we really are. Yeah, uh, ego is a stage that the soul goes through. First, for physical survival, you know, you have to become a separate individual and focus on the body for to really preserve your body and protect it and all of that. Because, and then, but it is also we learn. We learn a lot of things through the ego. We learn to think, we learn to logic, we learn, you know, and the human civilization developed because of it. So it has its advantage, but to to continue believing that's how, the only way we can experience ourselves, for me, is the primary delusion. Mm. Not that it is an error, but that to believe that's it, that's the final thing, it is, is the error. And Amid, you you described ha- how you don't experience yourself at this stage. So, how do you experience yourself at this stage? It's indescribable. Mm-hmm. Okay. It, it is, you know, it, it changes much of the time. Most of the time, I'm nobody. Nothing here. Mm-hmm. Nobody talks. Talking happens. Things like that, you know. You know, sometimes I feel divine love as I'm talking to you about it. I feel divine love and the fullness and the sweetness and all that kind of merge. So uh, my, I don't have one place I stand. Mm. Yeah. I mean, what does it What does it feel like when you're teaching or you're writing when this stuff is coming through you? What's the experience of that for you? The experience is that whatever is need and um, teaching comes through. Naturally, because I've already integrated it, it's already accessible. It might not be my station, but something that can, comes out because it's the the true nature is responsive to what's needed in the situation. So, what's, if I'm teaching something, it's what's needed emerges. 
naturally. I found that, and it was surprising for a while and seemed magical. But now I take it that's how reality is. Well, it sounds like there's developed a kind of another facet of basic trust here, basic trust that whatever is necessary will come through this body-mind. Yeah, basic trust. And after a while, you even forget about basic trust. It becomes second nature or first nature. You know, you don't think about it. It just happens. And how do you work with, just on the basic trust, seem like two major levels here. One is the of course, the basic trust of, of the infant, but but then there's the ba- a, a growing basic trust in the goodness of reality, which, as you point out, you suggest is most easily recognized through the facet of divine love. How do you help people develop that capacity of basic by, trust? By exploring the limitation of basic trust in them. Ah. Mm-hmm. And I know how that happened how that limitation came about, that takes them to early childhood and how they felt, whether they're being held lovingly or not, which bring, can bring in a lot of terror, a lot of pain, you know, and going through that, you see. And that way one reconnects with the already existing basic trust that came into the world with it. So in some ways then it's partly a a reconnection, and partly yeah. it sounds like also uh, a kind of opening. Yeah, and one regresses in terms of experience emotionally to earlier on when it got limited. Sometimes it gets limited by things happen in life, you know, as one grows up, you know, accidents and illnesses and, you know, things like that can, can impact it too. And one has to, you know, go through all of that to uh, regain the natural thing, natural condition of basic tasks, like, you know, what's going to happen? Going to die? Body will die. I'm be, I'll be fine. You know, I am indestructible. I mean, not I'm only indestructible. You can't find me to destroy me. There's nothing there to destroy or to die. That's a nice perspective on it. I mean, you experience this in little bits and pieces in, in your spiritual development. And, and and do you notice that in your students that, you know, they get it, that it's a, it's a state experience, but somehow informs them and it pushes them a little further along the way. And eventually you begin to stabilize that. You mean talk about basic trust? Yeah, I could definitely say that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, people, in fact, the first time I myself discovered it, as I noticed with some of my students at the beginning, some of them seemed easy for them to flow and open up, and some didn't. And that intrigued me. I said, what's that about? How come some people seem easy to open up and and relax, and some fight in the process? By exploring, I realized the more basic trust there is, the more one can relax and let things happen. And and that's when I first learned about it. I didn't know about it before, and I started experiencing it then. I wasn't experienced before because I already had enough basic trust. I didn't even think it existed until I saw it in its limitation, some of my students. And that's when I discovered it and saw its connection to love and all of that. Basic trust might be called great, not grace, but faith. 
in, in a Christian sense. Yeah, I think you're right. Yes. Yeah, I think faith can be seen as basic trust. Yeah. I think we're coming to the end of our time. I don't think I could go further. Okay. Well, uh, well, Hamid, thank you so much for being with us and taking the time to share these beautiful, beautiful teachings you put out in non-dual love and, and in this series. And once again, I just want to acknowledge the extraordinary benefit that I and so many of us have experienced from your being this uh, open vessel for all these things to come through. It's truly, truly been just such a gift and such a gift to be able to dialogue with you. Thank you so much. Great appreciation. It's my personal pleasure to talk about these things with you, to talk about these things, because I'm, it's not just me, it's the nature itself pouring out it's of its nature wants to help or you could say it wants to want to be useful you know you know impart something that's useful for people that's good that maximizes people's experience mm. so having the opportunity is, is is wonderful thank well, you well if you ever want to come back to discuss this book or any darn thing that you feel that's coming through you, please, you have an open invite and let us know because we... <laughs> Thank you, John. Yeah. yeah, And we'll look forward to volume three, but for now, the discussion of, has been of volume two in the, in the trilogy. Yeah, I mean, the volume three is going to be the beloved. All right. Yeah, we call it the <laughs> beloved, the inner beloved, you know. So that'll be an interesting kind of book. You know. Now it's being edited at the present time. So, oh, good. It's it's done. Your part. Anyway. Yeah, it's an addition editing. So thank you guys. It's been wonderful spending time with you. Amid, as always, just such a wonderful gift. Thank you so much, and all blessings on you and your good work. Wish you well. Wish you well. Hope we all stay healthy and and be as happy as possible <laughs> <laughs> and be all of us be radiant expression of love and light you know uh, that the world needs you know may it be so yeah <laughs> may it be so okay. goodbye thanks Amit. today's episode was brought to you by iWake technologies Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.